Welcome to the Better Business Podcast, a series for those business owner operators who want to create a better business. Here are your hosts, Chris and Mark. Uh, morning, listeners. It's Chris and Mark from the Better Business Podcast with a guest this morning, Mark Kennedy. The reason we've got Mark on this morning is research and giving insights around what are happening in various markets. So we thought it'd be a really good idea if we picked his brains today around what's going on in the world at the moment, what he's seeing, what's working and what's not working. So where I'm going to start with this is the last podcast Chris and I did was about leadership. I think we'll just start off with leadership and this could go anywhere and I hope it does. So Marco, Mark Kennedy, could you give us a bit on leadership just to start with? Sure. Hello, Mark, and hello, Chris, and hello, listeners. Um, as Mark introduced me before, I'm Mark Kennedy. I'm from the consulting division of Kantar. Um, so Kantar is the world's largest marketing insights firm, uh, with, uh, and we operate all over the world. So we're getting a huge influx of information, as you can imagine, from all over the world around what's going on in different countries. Um, and I think the the reactions are very uh, very localized in terms of how different countries or how different states are reacting uh, to the world around us. I think from a leadership perspective, what we're seeing is uh, I think the biggest thing or the biggest finding that Kantar is seeing the most consistent thing is that um, COVID nineteen shouldn't be a thing that's done to you or happens to you. You know. COVID-19 is something that you need to lead the way through. So from a leadership perspective, uh, businesses that are, or organizations that are doing well are demonstrating leadership and are leading through COVID-19 and businesses that are really struggling uh, are seeing what COVID-19 does to them. So I think being the master of your own destiny is really an important component of the leadership question. Um, and then I think leaders are very challenged because I think there's there's two reactions really. One is a uh, one is a, a reactive reaction, which really could be des- best described as management. So how are you managing your business in the current environment? And then the second reaction is really a proactive one, which is how are you building a plan to lead uh, and to find a way through this. Uh, into into the future and I think that's leadership's a component of management and true leadership and I think we're seeing uh, across the world a lot of management but we're seeing very little leadership would be my uh, would be my take on it Mark. Just on that one uh, Mark we talked a little bit Chris and I talked a bit a little bit on our last podcast about how this COVID-19 thing is lifting the lead and you talked to me about this some of which I repeated on this is that it's kind of smoking out leaders that aren't really leaders, in fact, who are managers. I think there's a great Warren Buffett quote, which is, you know, when the tide goes out, you can see who's swimming naked. (laughs) And I think uh, that's very much what we're seeing. You know, we're seeing um, in a lot of businesses, you know, people have have, um, have moved into very senior positions through management um, acumen. And then when COVID-19 hits, it kind of displays their lack of leadership acumen. And I think the businesses that are, that are doing uh, very well, actually, uh, and there's, there's a lot of opportunity, you know, as Churchill once said, never, 
lose the opportunity in a good crisis. There's a lot of opportunity and a lot of growth out there for businesses, um, but they need to go out and get it. You know, they need to they need to be active and on the front foot and leading and shaping their businesses to uh, to to shift them into a, um, a, a system of growth. I mean, one of the one of the examples in Australia, which I think is interesting, is what Macca's did. You know, in the early days, they had that ad. I don't know if you saw it, where the the two halves of the golden arches were separated to indicate um, social distancing, mm. and social media hammered them. You know, they got into a lot of trouble off it. They were talking about themselves. Uh, they were using, you know, a trite little idea. Uh, to try to take advantage of COVID-19 and they got into a lot of trouble very quickly. And then they shifted to uh, selling bread, milk and eggs through their drive-through system. So they used the scale of their infrastructure and their drive-through network to give practical help to people to access the, the necessities of life in a no-touch environment. You know, So they're putting food on the table, which is their core purpose, uh, but they're doing it in a very practical, pragmatic way by helping people, you know, and that that feels like leadership. That feels like doing useful things to help people. Mm. And uh, certainly the feedback in social media around that was has been very, very strong because uh, they've done something simple uh, but incredibly effective. Uh, it hasn't actually cost them anything from a communication point of view, but they've just helped people uh, uh, live a, um, uh, get back to some degree of normality by allowing them to do a simple thing in life in a safe way. So I think that's a, you know, I think the first, the separating the arches was probably a management idea. Yeah. Uh, and the, you know, bread, milk and eggs through the drive-through is really a leadership idea to me. So I think that's where you can start to see the difference. Could you give any more examples of opportunities that you're seeing? Well, I think the opportunities are to uh, really, I think it's, um, and again, I don't know if you saw the communication that Dove did around uh, simple photographs of people, frontline staff in hospitals, medicos with the marks of the PPE protection um, masks on their face and just showing that, uh, you know, heroism is beautiful. You know, it's a very simple idea. But the power of it, is, of it is that Dove is not celebrating themselves. They're celebrating other people. And I think celebrating uh, people in society who are, you know, risking their lives or being exposed to sickness to keep, uh, to keep things going, whether it's staff working in supermarkets, whether it's, um, whether it's uh, frontline staff, whether it's police, whether it's AMBOs, you know, all of those people are, uh, you know, it's, it, it's funny how society shifts and you really start seeing who necessary workers are uh, when the, there's a stress and strain on your society. But I think the, the businesses that are doing well are, as I say, being practical and useful and uh, helping people out in a, in a way that feels just, just very, very simple but very practical. So I think companies that are, are doing that well, uh, companies, you know, I think there's going to be a, um, you know, if there was any doubt that uh, uh, takeaway home food delivery uh, was uh, socially acceptable and normal, a normal activity, 
Um, it was being normalized before, you know, it's not that long ago that eating takeaway on a regular basis was a bit embarrassing and it was becoming normalized by society. Now it's completely normal. So I think it's going to be interesting as, as, uh, as the world opens up again, how differently people react to um, how they, how they buy food or put food on the table for their family. I certainly think there's going to be enormous opportunities in home delivery. Delivery, uh, We can see that with um, Australia Post, you know, their volumes are, are now double normal volumes. You know, they're putting extra shifts on, they're working at weekends. Um, obviously, home delivery will go back from what it is at the moment, but will it go back all the way? So I think uh, different business models will emerge. And I think, you know, off, off the recession, off the back of the uh, financial collapse, you saw the emergence of brands like Uber um, and, and huge companies being formed off the, back of that, uh, off the back of that recession. And I think you'll see large-scale businesses that we don't even understand yet being formed off the back of, uh, of this event. Mm. Um, one thing, thanks for that, really good uh, description. One thing you said to me, which uh, it'd be good if you could elaborate on a little bit, is about the term the new normal, which got you a little bit excited um, in as much as that you don't like it. Could you just talk about that for a minute? Yeah, well, I, I think it's uh, the new normal is really uh, kind of attributed to McKinsey. It's a McKinsey term. It's, it's what they've, you know, McKinsey have been promoting Mm. Um, across businesses, you know, to to uh, to sell their wares, really, you know, to help people adapt to a new normal. Um, I think the my sensitivity to it is it kind of assumes that before COVID was normal, um, which it wasn't. So you know, we we were seeing dramatic shifts in culture and dramatic changes in Australia before COVID. Um, you know, Australia and New Zealand share a Share a, uh, an unfortunate, uh, an, share an unfortunate statistics, which is, uh, you know, the, this part of the world we've got the highest rate of young male suicide in the world in the developed world. Uh, now you could argue that we measure it better, but certainly suicide rates have been going up for quite some time. Um, you know, levels of isolation uh, have been felt by people um, very significantly over time, and I think uh, this is what makes COVID most interesting that it's not really a binary thing. You know, you can hear it in, in people when people talk. They, they look at what's happened with the lockdown and they say, well, I'm nervous about finance and, I, you know, I don't like people losing their jobs and there's a lot of trauma and people are dying and all of that's very negative. But at the same time, there's some positives coming out of this, which is um, I'm spending more time with my family. You know, I'm feeling less rushed. Uh, I'm feeling less I'm less overwhelmed by life in general. I think a lot of people were feeling very overwhelmed by life before COVID. Uh, this has been a this has been a, a kind of a um, an inflection point, if you like. And and some of the numbers it depends on the data you look at, but some of the numbers that I'm seeing from different sources, you know, over sixty percent of in one report I saw over sixty percent of Australians said. They thought COVID was the, uh, the the reset that we needed as a society. Um, and another piece of work said that over 70% of Australians feel that uh, we'll be stronger coming out of COVID than we were going in. 
so uh, I think there's uh, there's a number of things there that uh, that are, are making a difference to people, and I think people's reaction to that will be uh, will be very varied. The new normal. The problem I had with the term was literally it assumed that before COVID felt normal to people, and I actually don't think it did. Hmm. Worth pondering. Worth pondering. I think it might be worth us saying here, Pez, that um, Mark sometimes deals with owner-operated businesses and he sometimes deals with much larger ones than we deal with. As you're describing what you're describing, Mark, we're thinking about how this might be. I think it is applicable to smaller businesses. Some of it won't be as we go through this conversation, but um, we'll, or Chris probably particularly will question you on some of this. Certainly will. Um, really interesting where you're headed with this, Mark, and I find it, um, I love the, the simplicity of that message around practical and useful. Um, I was speaking a couple of years ago to, to a, a researcher, um, not dissimilar to yourselves, but, but on a much smaller scale, and they specifically focused around the idea of customer service, I guess the values and the, the, the key drivers around excellent and superior customer service to create transformational experiences for clients and, and customers and so on. And what was really interesting to me was that when you look through all the research that, that his particular company did, he got it down to pretty much two, two key um, values, if you like, that were at the top of the tree, which were helpful and friendly. And when I hear like being helpful and friendly and relating it to your, your example of what Maccas did with their drive through and, and it, you know, practical and useful things that just help people, that, that starts going into the, into the leadership um, space for me. What other opportunities are you seeing for businesses that obviously at the corporate level, uh, you know, the examples you've given around Dove and McDonald's and whatnot, where are you seeing that filter through to even some of your local experiences, not necessarily things you've researched into, but just some experiences that you've um, seen a connection to what you're researching as to what you're actually experiencing when you go about your affairs, you know, in your daily life in the last couple of months? Well, I think, I think Chris, from the point of view of what people are looking for, you know, when people are feeling stressed and, and people are feeling that there's insecurity around the place or they're feeling that danger is lurking, uh, they look for the familiar. There's a search for the familiar. And I think there's two sorts of familiar. There's the familiar, which are very large scale brands that you've grown up with and you're familiar with them, you know, be that's, you know, brands like Dettol, for example, at the moment are booming because people are looking for, uh, um, you know, they're, they're looking to make their home safer, but they're looking to do that using brands that they're familiar with. Um, but also there's a familiarity around brands that feel or businesses that feel very close and proximate to them. So, you know, they feel that they're very, these brands are, are local and have a local agenda and, and feel very close to them from a, from a proximity perspective. So I think one of the things that, um, I think the same, personally, I think the same rules apply to large scale businesses they do to owner operators. I just think it's the application that's different. Yeah. So people are looking for familiarity and that is a human need that doesn't vary dependent on the scale of the business that they're interacting with. 
They're looking for familiarity. Now, how you execute that as a small business versus a big business is different, but it's the same human driver. So if I would, if I would to say to build on your point about being, uh, being friendly and helpful kind of thing, I think that those are two key things that relate to customer service. I think the other thing that relates to customer service is a feeling of proximity or closeness, a feeling of familiarity. Now I can do that because I've heard of Amazon or I've heard of eBay. You know, I can, I can get familiarity because they're massive global brands or I can get familiarity because these people live in my local area. I know them, you know, they know me, they know the dynamics of the local area. Um, and I think this becomes very important in terms of, of, of service provision. You know, recently, as a personal experience, I had a personal experience with a, a plumbing uh, contractor that came uh, to help us out with a plumbing disaster a few months back. And they were, their, their quality and level of customer service was absolutely stunning. You know, the interaction, the speed of interaction, uh, they were, you know, they came from my local area. They knew the local area. They'd grown up there. Uh, they wrote me a handwritten thank you letter for, their, for the custom. You know, they did a great job. They turned up on time when, uh, when they said they would. You know, all of those things breed a sense of familiarity and proximity. Um, so I think the key thing for owner-operator businesses is to truly understand what people are looking for. What do they want? Um, you know, people, I, th I think consumer insight's quite easy in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, consumer insights is about figuring out humans search for what's in short supply. That's what they look for. So whatever feels to them to be in short supply is what they're going to look, is what they're going to buy, is what they're going to look for. Now, you know, with um, uh, certainly the world I see, I think um, products, there's, there's very little short supply of product in the world. You know, most categories that have got too much product in them, frankly. <laughs> And most products, you know, most people are overwhelmed with the competition level for product in their categories. But often what's missing is any sense of proximity, familiarity, humanness. Um, you know, in, in my world, again, big businesses always say that the, you know, the soft skills are the hard skills. So this is really where owner-operated businesses have an advantage owner-operated businesses are faster moving and they're more human or they could be they're, they're often not frankly yeah. but they, that's their advantage i think owner-operated businesses need to play to their advantage not not to try to make up for their disadvantage so yeah. i see a lot of owner-operated businesses trying to be like ge you know they're trying to look like corporates yep where actually I see a lot of corporates desperately trying to look like owner-operator businesses. You know, the, the, the two pass each other in mid-air mid almost. So yeah, I, think, yeah. I think the real opportunity here is to, to have an understanding of what people are looking for and then to execute against that need in a way that suits the business you're in. And just on that, what um, obviously with a lot of the larger corporations, 
I'd imagine that the um, the research behind a lot of the stuff that they do and that that organisations such as Cantar support them on is an ongoing um, initiative. It, it, it's always there at some level. What do you see as the opportunity for smaller businesses to be able to do quickly to get some of those human insights enable to enable them to you know adapt quickly to for that practical, helpful, friendly, useful um, approach and, and that human quality that they can give to their clients and customer base? What could they do quickly? Well, I think two important points is, first of all, people are people. So, you know, I think you can talk to your mates and talk to yourself, actually, mm-hmm. and say, what, what are you feeling and what do you need? What do you look for? Um, I think the advantage that small businesses have got, again, goes back to proximity to they're close to people um and i would ask i would just ask people like market research is just asking people stuff at the end of the day Hmm. um you know and and big businesses need quite large-scale research because they're not terribly close to people in their markets you know because they're big global businesses so they need to do a lot of research to to get as close as possible to the end users of their products but if you're an owner operator business and you know a customer and you know you deal with them regularly i would get on the phone and ask them you know i am often amazed at how little uh businesses ask you know of people like mm. uh, that you, you know there's we certainly talk to experts in fields around the world you know very significant experts who might be academics or might be you know, people with enormous amounts of knowledge. And one of the one of the most common reactions we get from people is, well, thanks for ringing because nobody ever asks me. <laughs> now, that to me seems like a massive miss for small scale businesses. You know, people, you know, and I, I think this is, you know, I originally kept come from the UK, but I think one of the things that about Australia is that people in business are enormously generous. You know, if you ask them stuff, they tell you, you know, and, and really there's very few barriers to talking to people in Australia or New Zealand. You know, people are friendly, they're open, they'll talk to you, they'll give you their honest opinion. Um, and certainly at the moment, you know, when, and this is really one of the problems when things are dynamic. Uh, Chris, I think this is probably one of the biggest challenges for owner-operated businesses that I see. Um, and I work with a lot of them, actually. I work with a lot across New Zealand and Australia. Uh, one of the problems with owner-operated businesses, their day job takes up most of their time. You know, it's mm. it, they're resource challenged and they're often, you know, time is one of the biggest resources they're challenged by. Um, and I think the day job gets in the way and, and trying to produce things and get stuff out the door tends to mean the organization has got a very product orientated view of the world or very service orientated view of the world. But I think in times like these, when the world is dynamic, it's, you have to make time to be asking people what they're feeling, what they're seeing, what they're looking for from their suppliers, what they're looking for from their partners in, um, and, and get to the nub of that quickly and then start making changes to deliver against it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's sorry, it just, it's a great point because 
Um, I think you hit on a, two things there that are just so important for the owner operator. One is the time factor and that they do have to make the time. Um, but the other one also is how easy people will, will offer their opinion if you just ask them, especially as you say, in Australia and New Zealand. Um, it, it was, I, I recall a situation oh, maybe about four or five years ago where I was working with sort of a, a medium sized suburban accounting firm. And for the first time ever, they, they sort of drummed up. We were trying to coach them around, um, you know, product development and product service and, and asking their customers about what else they might want. And as you probably know, one of the biggest fears that a lot of um, organisations have in getting into that realm is that uh, if we start asking them these questions, they might start telling us things that we don't like, <laughs> we don't mm. want to hear. Yeah. Um, but then when you wade through that, that's all, that's all rich information anyway. But when you wade through um, what comes after that, if you, if you ask the right questions, is all this wonderful information about how you can adapt your service to, to respond and, and lead um, to exactly what they want. So they sent this survey out to about, I think it was nearly 800 clients. 600 of them responded. Mm. Yeah. 600 clients of a suburban accounting firm responded. And, and to me that, that was, that spoke volumes just in the response rate. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think uh, it goes back to that point that often people are just not asked, mm. you know, I think, um, I think certainly you do need some basic technique, you know, but you can, you know, you can find that on, you can Google it, right. You can, you can yeah. find basic uh, technique around, uh, around research and interviewing, you know, don't, uh, you know, don't ask leading questions, you know, don't ask close ended questions, all of those things. And, and, and also push behind beyond the obvious, because when you ask people what they want, their initial reaction is going to be, I want it better. I want it faster and I want it cheaper. Hmm. But to me in research, that's a bit like them saying, um, that's them pausing to think <laughs> like that's not true. That's just them pausing to think. Yeah. So you know, if if price is if price is dominant, if price is the major thing that they're talking about, you need to push harder in the questioning because in research, you know, through all the research I've seen, price is a pretty low order driver of decision making. It's not very high up on the hierarchy, actually. Yeah. Um, it's much lower down than people think it is. Prices usually crops up when people aren't enormously sure why they should be buying off you. Yeah, you know, would it be fair to say, Mark, that price often crops up as well when people aren't happy? It, it does, Mark. I think it often crops up, but it often crops up if they can't put their finger on why one particular product or service is differentiated from another. Mm. You know, so if if your differentiation is poor then, um, you know, it tends to boil down to price because uh, you're different, you know, it's the classic commoditization effect. And I think it's, it's maybe important to, to differentiate between what, you know, and certainly this is large scale um, businesses again, because they, they need this delineation for the scale. But I think it's important that companies delineate sales from marketing because they're two completely separate jobs. So salespeople really, on the whole, tend to want to sell more volume for less money, whereas marketers want to sell less stuff for more money. 
you know, the KPI, the KPI of a marketer is really margin and profit, whereas the KPI of sales is really volume. And, you know, that the friction between, if anybody's worked in large-scale corporates, you'll know that the friction between those two departments is, is, is very real. You know, the, it's a battle between them. And through the battle between them, you get a balance, hopefully, between those two things. Yeah. Um, the marketing, think, the marketing department are battling to keep the margin and the profit, and the, all they see is the sales department giving it away. Exactly, exactly. And you know, sales will see marketers as thinking too much and trying to flog stuff for too much money, and you know, they want to shift volume. And both, both have got a point, right? They're both right. Yeah. Um, the the thing is that the balance between those two factors is important. And I think from from the point of view of owner operator businesses that, uh, you know, the vast majority of them um, that I've seen, certainly, I think they're usually, you know, small businesses, which I'm sure you two see small businesses often have absolutely brilliant product and service. And you go, that stuff's really cool. You know, often product and service is very, very good. Actually, they've really thought yeah. it through and they've put a lot of time into it. Uh, what they tend to do then, because they've got to pay the rent, is they go into a heavy sales mode where they're trying to flog that product as hard as they can. Um, what they're often forgetting is the marketing piece, which is really the margin and the proximity to their market. And I think that's the bit often, I'm always, Chris, I don't know about you, but I'm always, um, I'm always uh, kind of uh, confronted with the thought that when marketing is most ex most important to companies is the time when they've got the least time and resources to do it. You know, <laughs> so it's always a, it's always kicked down the road a little bit. And then if you don't tackle it early enough, it becomes a massive problem later on. Yeah. And you start to get that lumpiness in, in the revenue. You so it, it's where you get all that, those cyclical things where you go marketing heavy, um, you know, sales activity, low and then sales activity is high and then you get this revenue cycle of up, down, up, down, peak trough, peak trough. You might remember, Chris, in the global financial crisis through some of the research we did, our business, when we were working together, mm -hmm. one of the things we struggled to do was to get the business we were working with to keep marketing because they're very inclined to bin that very early in the piece and the ones that did keep marketing really came out of that without too much trauma in their life. Yeah, and, and it's that whole, you know, where, where a lot of this conversation is going is about that the marketing during a crisis is actually the human element of it. It's not, it's not putting out a flashy campaign like the Mark's example of the, the two golden arches coming together and all that sort of stuff. It's at, about saying, how can we help you? And, you know, what, what we're seeing and, and what I've experienced with, with a bunch of businesses over the last couple of months is that they're amazed at the reaction they get when they're, when they talk to their clients, when they just ring them up and say, how are you going? What else could we be doing for you? What would be useful during this time? We're here. Do you want to just have a chat? Sending them across something in the mail that surprised them. It's, it's all that, just that human element to say, we actually really care about you because we're feeling a little bit like this as well. And, and if you take it away from the business example, it's the, why, why have um, 
telephone calls and Zoom meetings with family members all of a sudden become a lot more emotional than what they were three months ago. Because I think it's to Mark's point is that we're craving the thing that's in short supply. Yeah, we're craving contact one way or another. Yeah. Um, It's the point that Chris and I talked about a while ago, Marco, and you just, Marco, as in Mark Kennedy, hit on it just a couple of times then. One was differentiate and one was product. Mm -hmm. And you might recall in our last podcast, Chris, we talked about how clients will position themselves somewhere quite high and then source a product that is completely inappropriate to where they're positioned. Oh, yes. (laughs) It was you get what you pay for. Yeah, you get what you pay for. But yeah. if you are, you know, if you want to differentiate yourself, I think that was a really excellent point of Mark's. Is if your differentiation is poor, price will become an issue. Yep. And 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 just to just to talk on that a little bit is yeah, we we made that um, that distinction. I think uh, some podcasts ago when we spoke about there's no such thing as competition about how the battle for price only comes about when, when you can't differentiate something else, whether it's your, you know, your product or your service or, or the market you service. Um, but also what was going through my mind as, as Mark Kennedy was speaking um, around that was also how employees, and this is something I, I talk about a bit with, with businesses is that employees if you take the price conversation that a customer might have with a business um, and it comes into the fore when they don't know really what's differentiating them, the same thing happens when an employee often will, will put in a, an ambit claim for a pay rise because they don't know specifically. Usually a lot of that frustration and conversation comes about because they don't know where, what their pathway is in that business. So there's a lack of clarity within an organization and, and it led it's, it's, can be about their vision, their culture, their, you know, what, what purpose they're serving or even just where their succession is in terms of their role and their development and so on and so forth. So all of a sudden people are sitting in this place where they feel like they can't actually move anywhere. So what are they going to do? They're going to talk about their price. They're going to put a value on their time and effort and say, this is what I think I'm worth. And there's very, very um, poor context for that conversation generally. Um, that's where I wanted to speak to Mark a little bit about in terms of what you're then now seeing. And, and I assume this is part of your research and what you, what you cover off what you're actually seeing in organizational cultures. Um, and, and if this isn't part of the research, let me know, but do, do you delve into, into organizational culture and, and um, some of those things that you're seeing now? Yeah, we do, Chris, because it's, uh, you know, really the value customer value proposition and employee value proposition are kind of two halves of the, of the the same coin really they're two sides of the same coin so you know increasingly um as businesses go forward the internal culture there's a concept that i'm i'm sure you're aware of but it's talked about a lot which is uh, glass-walled businesses where these days people can just see through the walls so they can see who you are um whether it be social media or whatever they can they can see through the walls they know who you are as an entity, um, you know, so that really there, you don't have the ability to stop your internal culture um, uh, kind of exiting the walls, really. You know, if you've got a poor internal culture, it's going to get out. And if there's a discrepancy or a difference between your uh, positioning or what you say you do and who you are, that is ultimately going to get you into trouble. 
and it'll be it'll manifest in emails in conversations in phone calls in whatever you know the you know if your uh, if your audience group internally the audience group inside a business is the most interested and most emotionally engaged audience group you've got so if they don't believe you nobody's going to believe you effectively so from that point of view, your inter internal cultural um, environment uh, is, is critically important to your brand and your long-term equity as a company. And I think this is, this is something that particularly at the moment, you know, the, the reaction to staff internally and the way staff are treated internally in times of crisis, those things, you know, those stories are going to get out. <laughs> you know, they're not going to be hidden. They're going to get out, and uh, you know the, the 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 actions you take in a moment of crisis will affect you for you know years to come. An example we're using is a simple example of uh, Dawn detergent, which is a Procter and Gamble product in the U.S. And uh, back in the day, in 1989, the Exxon Valdez oil tanker broke up off the coast of Alaska and spilled oil oil all over you know, untouched Alaskan coastline and Dawn detergent donated huge amount of detergent, um, you know, washing up liquid for want of a better phrase, mm. uh, donated huge amounts of detergent for the cleanup. Uh, now they've just celebrated their 30th year of protecting and supporting wildlife. That action has benefited the brand for three decades, mm. that leadership action. And, you know, much to my key client's chagrin, which is Colgate, uh, you know, Palmolive has never managed to get near them from an equity point of view, even though the Palmolive products actually are better products. So the Palmolive product, the Palmolive produce, you know, technically better products, but they've, for the last 30 years, they've been completely incapable of getting near to Dawn's equity because of an action Dawn took at a moment of crisis. So I guess the question for businesses now, which is the question we're asking, is you've got a management, you've got a short-term calamity with COVID-19, you've got to manage through it, but your actions now, good, bad, or indifferent, are going to be with you for years, possibly decades to come. So you have to think about it carefully. You know, and to your point of view, now's not the time to be cold and distant. Now's the time to be human and proximate and helpful. And if you do that, even if it costs you money in the short term, um, it's going to pay dividends in the medium to longer term. And if you don't do that, you're going to be paying the price in the medium and longer term as well. So, you know, you know that at, at the moment, now is definitely not the time to, to not have a plan about how you're going to behave and what you're going to do, you know, and, and I think this is the challenge for owner operator businesses. Now is also not the time to be self orientated and selfish. Now is the time to be helpful to the community that you serve and the partners that you work with, because you're going to be living with that for a very long time. So Thank I think you. that, that's that's a key question for businesses that they have to resolve. Such a good point. Is your key point there, Mark, that owner operated owner operated businesses need to be way more outlook outward looking? 
then? Well, there's, there's, there's a bit of a yes, Mark. There's a, there's a bit of a techie thing here as well, if you, if you allow me from a technical point of view, in terms of how brands are built. So there are uh, what people like me would call lagging indicators or lagging factor, factors and there's leading factors. What was so the second term? Leading factors. Leading so really the leading factors are the factors that, that are, are, you know, they often call them markets, uh, market factors. So they're things that you're doing at the moment to stay in business. So it's sales, it's, it's building, um, you know, cut through in markets, it's differentiating, it's, uh, you know, being set, you know, looking different to your competitive sets all of those kind of things. And, and that's often what people think marketing or brand building is. Um, they're, they're very short-term factors, actually. It's kind of keeping yourself alive at the moment. And it's, uh, it's pushing and selling the brand. But there's another side to your brand, which are often called lagging indicators or lagging factors, which are really um, what often colloquially might be called reputation. Or respect. Now, those factors take a very, very long time to build, to build respect in markets. And I think owner operators see this, you know, they might be in an industry for 10 or 15 years before people feel that they're in the industry, you know, it might take a long time to build a reputation, which it often does. But it also takes a long time for that reputation to decay. So as you're building that reputation or uh, you know, often called brand equity, uh, as you're building that equity in your market, that is what is going to pay the rent in future years. That's where you, that's what you're going to make the money off. So you're building a brand with uh, stability. You're building a business with stability and you're building a business that can, um, can attract revenue later on in, in times when maybe markets are more, are more, um, you know, are more competitive or more settled. And one of the important things with that is that long-term brand equity is also really the value of your business. It's actually what people buy when they're buying your business. They don't buy your, your sales at the moment. They buy the equity that you've built because the equity, the reputation you've got is the primary indicator of future success. Mm. So one thing I would say at the moment in the COVID-19 world is now is a much, much more important time to be building your reputation and long-term equity than it is to be doing the immediate short-term stuff. Now, I would say um, right there, Mark, that I think a lot of CEOs that Chris and I work with, one of our main tasks in life is to get them to get out of their own way in other words get them out of the day job which you talked about and surely this would be an ideal time to build their lagging brand equity because i i think they're going to possibly have way more time to do it now they're going to have a lot of other things to address as well but surely this is a good time to do it and, and, and I'm, I'm not certainly not underestimating the challenge there, Mark, you know, because it's a real, sorry, it wasn't a it's challenge. A, no, and it's, it's a real kind of rub your tummy and pat your head moment, really. Yeah. You've got to do short term things. You've got to stay in business. You've got to keep the lights on. You've got to keep the rent paid. You know, you've got to do all of those things. 
but actually at the same time, you've got to be building your rep. Now is the perfect time to build rep. Reputations will be built and destroyed in this period. They'll be built and destroyed in this period. And some brands will, will be living off the, the reputation that they built for the next 30 years. And some companies will never recover from what they did now. And that's just the truth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some companies will um, prosper in the future because of short of decisions that they made. Some of them might be very simple. It might be the phone calls they made to partners to see how they can help. It might be the way that they interact with their suppliers. It might be, you know, just very simple human things that they do now may either come back to haunt them or may come back to, um, uh, to, to uh, benefit them in future months and years. And, and that's just the way it is because whatever you do at the moment in periods where people are very emotionally engaged, which is certainly true at the moment, everything you do has a higher impact than it would normally. So every little action you take now is, you know, potentially worth hundreds of actions in a different period. Yeah, it's a fabulous point. If I can use quite a trite example of, of what you're talking about there, um, and I'll juxtapose two different scenarios in our household. Uh, with, with three young kids, they're involved in a lot of different activities and sports. And what's been really interesting is is seeing um, the clubs and the you know organisations they're involved with how those organisations have adapted to maintain um, the the connection and the relevance in in the lives of the kids for health benefits, for community, for for um, you know just fitness and and so on and so forth. And my wife and I were discussing how what what are the ones we've felt let down by, and what are the ones we've actually increased our our respect for. And it's it's interesting the ones that you know, and we're both completely on the same page with them, where where we we've really enhanced our respect and and probably long term commitment um, to a couple of the things our kids are involved with, whereas we'd easily let go a couple of the other things for the way that they've they've in a way acted throughout this this last you know six to eight weeks, and when we put our fingers on the context, one one is clearly the ones that we we feel like an enhanced commitment to in the longer term they've they've acted out of that context of of connection and community and and you know being being helpful and and all that stuff that we've spoken about and the other ones you know to your point eggy was around the self-interest you know the, oh this is what we're going to keep doing and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and it was all we 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 and the other ones were all about how do we get this to you for you to feel more um, connected and and um, interested and healthier and whatever it is. So it, it's really interesting how even just some of those small examples at a very micro, you know, suburban level, um, you know, are, are also playing out when, when we talk about some of these bigger things that, that you're talking about, Mark. I think there's a really good example on a big... I've got two examples there, Chris. Uh, one's a big scale, one's a very tiny scale. On the big scale, I am so irritated with the NRL. And I just feel like saying why don't you grow up guys about refusing to recognize that everyone's doing their best in this period and they don't seem to be doing their best at all on a small level on a local level uh my local doctor brands themselves as a family practice 
as soon as this started, uh, I had to go and have my flu shot. They have a council car park out the back of their surgery, not a multi-storey one, one just on ground level. And they virtually shifted their whole waiting room to the car park. So when, you, when I went to have my flu shot, they just said, park in the car park, we'll ring to see if you're there. We'll come out with the needles, the injections, the tray, everything. And this is how they're conducting their business, just so they can keep people out of the surgery. And how, I think, how did that make you feel? Uh, really good, actually. And there was two other doctors doing consultations. It did look like they were doing a drug deal. Initially. <laughs> <laughs> the two other doctors on either side of our car were seeing patients in their car. And I thought, you guys have really thought about this and done it really quickly. Hopefully that's the first time you've had drugs administered in a council car park. <laughs> it is. may not be the last, but certainly the first. And I think there's probably a couple of points in there just from a, from a research and insight perspective, just to, to go back to the point you were making earlier, Chris. One is that, you know, it doesn't matter if things are small or big because it's the insight you're looking for. So when you're looking for insight, you can find them in big places and small places. Um, you're searching for an insight. You're looking for insight into the world. You're looking for things that are affecting human beings. Mm it doesn't actually matter if it's a sample of one or it's a large scale research piece. Obviously you get more confidence with large scale scale research pieces because the, the, the insight is repeated, you know, the, the insight is, re, is repeated. So you can see that it's, it's got more, uh, it's, it's more robust or it's more, um, uh, it's, it's, it's more um, accurate, if, if that's even the right word. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't at all, and I don't actually, uh, miss out on the opportunity to see an insight in the, in the small things that happen in life. Because really, all you're doing is looking for how people react and how people behave. That's what you're looking for in research. And you can find that anywhere. You can find that in your high street, you can find it in your family. You can find it in yourself. You can find it in government data. You can find it in all sorts of places. So the thing from an insight perspective is to be interested and to be focused on what you're looking for. That's really the thing. And then you can find those human behaviors. And I think it's very true. You know, you, you people at the end of this will be making decisions about what their kids do and what they don't depending on the reaction of the bodies that they interacted with. And then I guess the last point I would make really for people to bear in mind is that actually this moment in time from an economic perspective is very, very unusual. In fact, it's never happened before. So as a people are talking about recession and they're talking about all sorts of economic issues, but the one thing I would bear in mind is that this is a demand shock. It's not actually an economic shock. So hmm. the world turned demand off and then the world is going to turn demand on again. Yep. And that has never happened before. So actually we don't know what it means, but you know, what, gov what a lot of businesses will face is they will face the double, double whammy of dramatic and immediate turning off of demand with relatively dramatic and relatively immediate turning on of demand. And both of those things are a problem. So this is, that would probably be my last point is that this is a demand shock and, and how you react to a demand shock, 
you know, there's there's going to be very little learning actually from previous economic yeah. issues or recessions. That learning isn't going to be relevant, or most of it won't be relevant because this 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 uh, this moment in time has never really been seen before. Yeah, it's a very good point because that 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 was one of the things that it was a bit of a discussion at the start of this was that it was, this one wasn't because of a, a, a structural failing in any particular segment of the, of the economy. It was actually because things, the lights literally got turned out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that, just on that, and I know you are running short of time. One of the things I demand is I demand to play golf. And if Daniel Andrews does the right thing in about five minutes, that, that, that should actually happen this weekend. So I'm going to feel a lot happier about life in the next few moments. Um, or, or, or suicidal, either way. Um, I don't know about you, Eggy, but I think this has been one of the absolute most enlightening, um, wonderful chats that we've had. Oh, I totally, I totally agree with that. And I really like the way Mark has an ability to take those complicated ideas and put them in lovely, meaningful terminology. Both Mark and I, um, have a pursuit. It's not golf. And hopefully our premier will let us engage in that hopefully within two weeks and we'll be feeling much better about ourselves too. And, and if Mark is so inclined at some point in the future, I'd love to have him back and, and have a bit of a chat in a post COVID-19 world and see if, you know, what, what's come about some of this discussion. I'd be more than happy for that, Chris, more than happy. And, uh, you know, I hope you and your family stay safe and, uh, and I hope um, all of the businesses that you talk to and interact with uh, find their way through this period as well. Um, I think the my final point is I think there's a there's there's a lot of opportunity in this world. There's a lot of opportunity in the environment, and there's a there's a lot of changes going to happen to categories. There'll be a lot of changes to who's who in the zoo in terms of businesses, you know, and some of the old the old structures where certain businesses dominated. Um, a lot of that's going to change. So I think for small owner-operated businesses, actually, you know, they are fast-moving. They can be fleet of foot, and I think there's a lot of opportunity for them. Yeah, um, thank you heaps, Mark, for that. Um, really excellent. Thank you, Mark. Pleasure. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Mark. Good to talk to you. Take care. Bye-bye.